You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. This morning, we're continuing our current sermon series called Urgent Love Letters, uh, in which we're exploring the seven letters that are written to seven churches by Jesus in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, how many of you guys have been watching the news in this last week? and have seen this eruption of the volcano on La Palma in the Canary Islands. Have you guys seen this? Crazy, crazy. It's simultaneously like, like beautiful and awe-inspiring to see kind of creation and geology and stuff and creation of new land masses and things just sort of happening right before our eyes, um, especially with a lot of the technology we have these days with drones and such. It's really amazing. Um, it's also equal parts terrifying, right? As you watch the lava flows kind of coming down the mountain, um, there have been thousands of people evacuated from their, their homes. Uh, hundreds of homes and other businesses and other buildings have been destroyed, just swallowed up by this like 40-foot wall of magma that's just kind of slowly moving towards the coast. Um, Amazingly, though, there have been zero injuries or fatalities. How crazy is this, right? This absolutely unstoppable force of nature, and and no one has lost their life. And why? Because for, for about the week or so leading up to the eruption, scientists have been closely monitoring a couple things. First, they could monitor somehow in their sciencey, nerdy ways, they could monitor the buildup of magma, right, in, in the earth with their magma buildup science tools. And, and also, in that single week, they recorded 20,000 earthquakes, right? Over 20,000 earthquakes, most of which are like far too small to, to sense. But this is what scientists call an earthquake sto- uh, storm. Now, if that's not a frightening term, I don't know what is. Earthquake storm, Um, And this, of course, especially if you're living on a volcanic island, this is a strong indicator of an impending eruption. So because of this, authorities were able to warn the public early. Uh, Many people, especially who live closer to the volcano, began packing up their valuables, uh, preparing for a potential evacuation. And of course, um, they they were evacuated. Um, So they were ready for it. They were ready for it. And so heeding the rumblings, the thousands of rumblings that were happening, saved people from imminent danger, right? Saved people's lives. Now, today, we're in the second letter um, that Jesus is writing in the, in the book of Revelation here at the beginning of it. Um, it's to a church in a city called Smyrna. And today's message is called Staying Faithful to the Faithful One. Staying Faithful to the Faithful One. And I'll give you the, the big idea right up front here. Is, is this, Jesus has a message for a really specific local church. These were real flesh and blood people that gathered together and were following Jesus in this flesh and blood city. He's writing a message to this church who are feeling the rumblings of a volcano that is about to explode. They're feeling these rumblings. These tremors are happening and they know something big is about to happen. And the big idea that we're gonna explore this morning is this, is that when angry, accusing crowds explode, stay faithful to Jesus. When angry, accusing crowds explode, we are to stay faithful to Jesus. So before we, we read, we're going to read Revelation chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and start directing your electronic devices to that, um, why don't we pray? And we're going to ask God's Spirit to talk to us this morning. 
Father, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the scriptures that you inspired people to write these things down, that you inspired people to preserve these and pass them along through all the centuries and to translate them in ways that we could understand. And we thank you that through them we can get to know you more clearly. We can see what kind of God you are. That, Jesus, we can come to understand little by little what it means to follow you. And that through the scriptures that we can see ourselves more clearly as well. And how it is that, that, that you have called us to fit into your plan. How we oftentimes get in our own ways. And so I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would talk to us today through these scriptures. God, I pray that, that your voice would speak much more loudly than my, than my own. And that every single person hearing this um, would hear something from you directly to their heart, directly to their life, where they are here and now. And may we respond to you, Jesus. Amen. So here we go, Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. This is when he's got the specific message to these Christians in Smyrna. So Jesus is directing John to do this. He says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, first of all, let me just say a couple of things. Because Revelation can seem like a rather unreal and surreal part of the Bible, I think it's helpful for us to remember just how real it originally was intended to be. And thus, just how kind of real and down to earth it can actually be for us. I think I'll put it this way. Revelation is a letter written to real people living in the real world, needing real hope in the face of real danger. So if you are a real person today, living in the real world, some of you just like elbowed your like spouse next to you. Some of you, if you're real people living in the real world and you need real hope in the face of real danger, this is not a bad place to go, right? It's a little bit crazy sometimes, but there is real hope for us here. Um, this entire letter of Revelation actually was a letter that was intended to be distributed throughout all the churches throughout Asia, or through seven major churches. And if you follow on a map, you've got John writing this in exile on an isle of Patmos. We started last week in Ephesus because Ephesus was a major port city. And then there's kind of a circuit that this letter was intended to run. It's going up north a little bit to Smyrna and then kind of all the way around to these very real people in these very real churches. And the intent was for all of these churches to read and thus heed this entire crazy letter, right? All of it, all of it. And what, what, what we're focusing on in this series, of course, is just this little microcosm of chapters two and three, which I think I would call sort of like letters within a letter. Does that make sense, right? This, these are like mini letters within a letter. Um, they're, they're sort of these specific addresses to local churches that are kind of like personal greetings. If you, if you, if you write a letter to someone, 
right? You're going to say, dear so-and-so, and you're going to have some personal greeting, and then you'll tell them whatever you need to. Paul does this frequently throughout the New Testament, right? He'll have some personal greetings in the beginning, then he'll get on with business. Um, that's sort of what Jesus is doing here. He's addressing these specific churches, um, specifically individually, before getting on with the whole bigger picture of everything. Um, but what's interesting is that all of the things that he said are being said publicly for everyone to hear, as it were, right? These aren't secret letters that only Smyrna, only Smyrna, you guys only read this part, right? He's saying, read the whole thing. He's not saying, Ephesus, you know, you guys don't pay attention to what I wrote to Ephesus. That's for them, but you guys read your own little parts. He's sort of giving these addresses publicly for everyone to hear and for everyone to heed, including us. Every single one of these letters ends by saying, whoever has ear has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural, right? Let everyone who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're all to listen to what Jesus is saying to the collective. They're not just supposed to listen to their individual message. Um, none of these churches gets to pick and choose which message they listen to. We don't get to pick and choose which messages we listen to. Isn't that a big bummer sometimes with the Bible? Like, we wish, can we just skip this part? Maybe Jesus doesn't want to talk to me here. And he's like, nope, we're going to listen to the whole thing. So, but today... We are looking at these very specific words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna. And again, back to the volcano idea, right? These Jesus followers in the city of Smyrna, they were feeling these tremors. The earth was shaking. Things were uncomfortable. They were getting nervous. And these were indications that something was about to erupt. Now, we're going to unpack a couple little phrases in this that I, that I think are helpful. And when, we get to, when we're thinking about the tremors, these are the tremors that this church was feeling. In verse 9, when it says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. All right? These were kind of like bad things that, that are already happening that were making this church really feel uncomfortable. They were being slandered. Have you ever been slandered by somebody? right? Slander is like things that anything that somebody is saying, especially generally like false charges, they're saying something that is negative and is bad, but it's not necessarily true about you or somebody else. They're misrepresentations of someone meant to defame or damage the other person's reputation, right? So you have these Jesus followers trying to just live out this faithful life of Jesus in this city, Right? And at this time, it's interesting to note, there wasn't necessarily is this clear division of like Christianity and Judaism. Right? At this point, for the most part, these were Jews and sometimes some Gentiles mixed in who kind of fell under the umbrella of the Jewish faith, but yet they were followers of the way of Jesus Christ, believing that he was the Messiah. So what you have is this other group of Jews who, for whatever reason, we don't get clear details here, but for whatever reason, they don't like this new little group of Jesus followers over here, so they're talking trash about them, right? All around the city. Have you guys heard about these Jesus followers? Some people call it like the way. Ooh, you're so special. You follow the way. They think they've got it. You know what I mean? And so they start like sowing discord throughout the city. They start misrepresenting what these people were really about, and this is kind of painful. Imagine being this group of people that suddenly your own folks that you were sort of a part of, and you're not necessarily trying to like break with them entirely, they're now talking smack about you to everybody in the city, and you can't get away from it. Now, the second phrase we get to is this phrase in this passage that talks about synagogue of Satan. 
And I'm sorry, we just can't get away from reading this passage and not talk about that. To my knowledge, this is the only time in the Bible this is ever used, probably because it's kind of inflammatory, right? It's kind of surprising. It might be shocking. It might even be kind of like fear-inducing in some kind of way. The synagogue of Satan, what does this mean? Now, an important thing to, to say here, I would say this about the Bible, and hang with me for a second in case you get like, kind of like perturbed. I don't think we should read all of the Bible literally, all right? Now, what I do think is that we should read the Bible literally, not just literally. And what I mean is that, that there are many different types of literature in the Bible. It's important for us to know what kind of genre of literature are we reading here, right? That, that we have to read something that is poetry different than we read a letter, just like we would today, right? We have to interpret it differently. We'd have to read uh, a, a, a something that's sort of historic and a historical account of something different than we would read either of those other two. And so everything that Jesus is saying here, he doesn't necessarily mean like literally 100% true. This phrase, synagogue of Satan, this is what we would call a metaphor. And Jesus was a master of metaphors, right? When he said like, like uh, if anyone wants to follow me, they must take up their cross and follow me. He's using a metaphor. None of us have actually ever carried a cross. Of course, he did it. He illustrated that for us. We know what it means. So all through the gospel, Jesus loves metaphor. Um, All through Revelation, turns out Jesus still loves metaphor, even in his resurrected state. And what's interesting, I, I love how Eugene Peterson, beloved author and pastor, he says, metaphors are literally lies. A metaphor is literally a lie. It's saying something that is not actually true, but that is intended to invite the reader or the hearer into creating a larger and deeper and richer meaning. So what Jesus doesn't mean, what Jesus doesn't mean here is that that there is a literal satanic cult offshoot of Judaism that exists in this town, right? They're not suddenly like worshiping the devil and drawing pentagrams on things, and like, like doing weird seances out in the woods at midnight, okay? This is not happening, but he's using this really kind of shocking metaphor because there's more going on here. Let's unpack these words. First of all, synagogue. It's really simple. It's, it's, a, it's from the Jewish word, and what it simply means is assembly or gathering, or in this place, in this place specifically congregation, right? This is, uh, um, it's a la ecclesia in the Greek of what the word would be for church, Right? Um, even the word that Jesus used in verse 8 here, when he says to the church in Smyrna, used the word ecclesia, which is to meaning a, a gathering of people. So this is a bunch of people that get together for a purpose and things happen. So hold that thought for a second, especially that it could be a religious gathering. So you have this synagogue, this assembly is gathering, and then second, he says that it's of Satan, right? Now the word Satan in Greek, satanas, in Greek, it comes from the Hebrew shatan, which simply means like adversary or accuser, right? And this is not the devil's name any more than like Jesus' name wasn't Jesus' last name, Christ, right? Christ is a designation of him being the Messiah, right? The devil is ascribed through the, throughout the Bible this, this name of Shatan or Satanas in Greek, which means adversary, right, or accuser. Now run with me for a second, right? The, Im- the image evoked by, by this title is like a courtroom scene where there is a defendant who is being accused by the shatan. His, like he's sort of like the prosecuting attorney, right? He's bringing these charges against somebody and, and they should be punished or judged in some kind of way. Now, the thing is, with Satan, as Jesus puts it back in the Gospels, lying is his native language, right? He doesn't speak English, 
right? You'd be like, oh, Satan, you speak English really well. You've got a good accent, you know? He's like, I try, you know? He's still lying. That, the, the accent is there. He can't always shake it. So his whole MO is to falsely accuse people. The devil's whole MO is to bear false witness, to slander, to malign, to destroy people's reputations, to induce shame, to crush people beneath the weight of undeserved guilt. This is his business. This is what he does. So when we put these together, right, well, what does it mean then that this is a synagogue of Satan? I think if I were to put this in other words for you, I would say this is an accusing crowd. This synagogue of Satan, Jesus wants us to understand, this is, this is an accusing crowd of people. They're, they're, they're slandering. Why? Because they're speaking the same language as the devil, bringing false accusation, bearing false witness against people. Now, let me read this to you. I was trying to put this in my own words this week, and I just couldn't do this justice very well. So I'm going to read you a short little bit. Um, this is from a book called Farewell to Mars. It's by a pastor and author named Brian Zahn. Um, and I believe this is from chapter three or so um, called Christ Against the Crowds. This is what he says about this whole idea of, of this like satanic crowd, right? He says, a crowd under the influence of an angry, vengeful spirit is the most dangerous thing in the world. It is closely associated with the essence of what is satanic. The unholy spirit, think mood or attitude, of the satanic is the inclination to blame, accuse, and recriminate. The word Satan and devil both mean to accuse and to blame. When the satanic spirit of angry blame and accusation infects a crowd, a perilous phenomenon is born. The crowd abandons truth as it searches for a target upon which it can express the pent-up rage it feels. I say it because the angry crowd takes on a life of its own. The crowd is now in search of a scapegoat whose role it is to bear the sin of the crowd. It works like this. When a group of people perceive themselves to be slighted or wronged, displaced or threatened, they can metastasize into a vindictive crowd. When a group of people becomes angry, fear-driven crowd, the groupthink phenomenon of mob mentality quickly takes over rational thought and individual responsibility. The mob takes on a spirit of its own, and the satanic is generated. The mob becomes capable of evil that would be unthinkable for most people as an individual. Now, let's just pause for a moment of reflection. Does this sound at all familiar? This is our country. This is our culture. This is the air we breathe. This is the water we swim in. These are the people that we shop amongst and work with and sometimes worship with. This sounds painfully familiar to me. And the door swings both ways, right? It's like we've got, we've got accusing crowds attacking other accusing crowds, 
Now, let's also remember two things we've considered today. First, that everyone is to heed all of the words of Jesus, right? So we don't get to read these words of Jesus and turn this into us and them, all right? We gotta, we gotta be able to listen. Second, that this, this synagogue of Satan, right, this satanic mob, this accusing crowd is a group of otherwise pious religious people that probably think they're doing the best good that they can. Now, Jesus, Jesus specifically uses the word synagogo in Greek, synagogue, here because it happens to be a group of Jews. So he's being just specific that that's, that's the situation here. But that doesn't mean that he couldn't use the word ecclesia for church. It doesn't mean that only Jews can become a part of, of this accusing crowd. It's not because their theology was wrong or something, and these Christians finally have their theology right, so they're exempt from it. Just because we profess to follow Jesus the Christ doesn't mean that we are immune from being duped into acting like an accusing crowd. Zahn goes on to write this one more little bit for you. He said, this is why if you follow an angry crowd, even if it calls itself Christian, you are likely to be wrong. Even if you're not wrong in the actual issue, you will probably be wrong in spirit. So never follow an angry crowd. Never. An angry person is bad enough, but an angry crowd is diabolical. Without any hyperbole, I insist that a crowd under the sway of an angry spirit is the most dangerous thing in the world. And I love this part. Let us be clear on this. Jesus does not lead his people as an angry crowd. Jesus does not lead his people to join an angry crowd. Jesus never leads anything other than a gentle and peaceable minority. Jesus' flock is never a crowd. It's always a little flock. No matter how numerous his followers, even if the flock of baptized Christ followers in the world today numbers two billion, it's still Jesus' little flock. And we cannot turn Jesus' little flock into a crowd. When the little flock becomes an angry crowd, it has become anti-Christ and has ceased to follow the good shepherd. Oh. I want to follow Jesus, guys. This means we have to put ourselves in check. This is a little side note. This is not my notes. This is a freebie. It struck me yesterday that, that our country affords us a lot more freedoms than Jesus does. Because we have freedom of speech, but Jesus says sometimes you need to hold your tongue. I'm going to stop there. So there's the tremors. <laughs> There's the tremors, right? These folks, these folks, and I'm not meaning even to say, guys, that this is us or this is you. Sometimes it's me, right? I think we all exist along this spectrum sometimes, right? But these are the tremors that these people are feeling, the slander from this mob that's accusatory. And, and the, this church in Smyrna is feeling these as an indicator of greater impending danger. And now here's the danger. This is the eruption that Jesus warns them about. He says, what you are about to suffer. I hate letters that Jesus that say, what you are about to suffer. <laughs> Man. 
I'm glad you understood the like, troubles we were going through, but now you're telling me it's going from bad to worse, right? He's essentially saying, he's saying, though, he's good, he is good, guys. He, he wants to care for us. He says this out of compassion as a warning to strengthen people, right? He's telling them, these tremors you've been feeling, they're really indications of something more dramatic that's about to happen, so be prepared. It's one thing to feel some earthquakes. It's, it's another thing to have molten lava continuously spewing hundreds of feet into the air and flowing down towards your home. So you, you want to be ready for that. Start packing your things, because it's coming. Just get ready. You'll know when it's time, and I want you to be safe. Like many of the folks on La Palma who began packing their things in the days leading up to this ultimate eruption of the volcano, Jesus is warning his church just to get ready, to not be surprised or caught off guard. Because this slander, which is just words, this slander is about to turn violent, The verbal is about to get physical. It's about to turn into, slander is about to become not just defaming someone's reputation, it's going to turn into imprisonment, and even he hints that it's possible that it could end up in death. So here's my question, because this sounds like a whole ton of bad news, right? This is my question that I was asking myself as I was pondering this text. Well, what, what then... What did Jesus' followers do? What what are these folks in Smyrna supposed to do? What do you and I do when things threaten to go from bad to worse? What do we do as Christ followers when things threaten to go from bad to worse? Is it Jesus' followers continue to follow in the way of Jesus? That's it. We stay the course. We continue to follow in the way of Jesus, even if it comes to it all the way to death. When angry, accusing crowds explode, and they will eventually stay faithful to Jesus. And this is the final like admonition, right, that he gives, which is just be faithful. Be faithful. Now, faithfulness, guys, faithfulness doesn't mean just gritting your teeth and bearing it. It doesn't mean just like, let's just hunker down until it all blows over. It it, it means continue to build your entire life, your entire existence around the faithful one. Now, it's interesting to me, when Jesus here says, be faithful, this is the second time in the book of Revelation that the word faithful is used. You know when the first time was? It's in Revelation 1.5. We're going to read this in just a second. Because faithfulness is not just a virtue that we have to muster up within ourselves, right? Our ability to be faithful is not rooted in our own piousness, but it's rooted in the person of Jesus himself. He is the faithful one, and thus we are able to be faithful to him. Jesus is the faithful one who we are encouraged to be faithful to in the face of great explosions. So check this out, Revelation 1.5, kind of wrap up by, by backing up a little bit. Remember, again, this, this little letter to Smyrna is just sort of an introduction for that church, but they're intended to read this whole thing. And I totally believe that when they hear Jesus say, be faithful, they're supposed to remember that this was just said about Jesus. All right, Revelation 1.5, grace and peace to you. This is John's introduction, right? Grace and peace to you from him who is 
and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I want to look at these three things real quick as he says about Jesus. And this is, this is the one that we are called to be faithful to. First of all, before he tells us to be faithful, he's saying, I am faithful. The faithful witness. Staying faithful to the, Jesus, to the faithful one, staying faithful to Jesus means telling the truth. Being believable witnesses. It means not getting caught up in the satanic mob, the accusing crowd. You see how Jesus is already comparing himself with them? Here's this angry, accusing crowd that wants to slander you, defame you, destroy your reputation, heap guilt on you, heap shame on you so that you are crippled and you are no longer to live as full human beings. That's what they're doing. They are being unfaithful witnesses. They are bearing false witness. They are speaking lies. Jesus is the faithful witness. He only speaks what is true. Jesus only speaks what is true about you. He doesn't speak the lies. He doesn't speak slander. If you feel constantly beat up and constantly guilty and constantly judgy, let me tell you whose voice that's not. It's not the voice of Jesus. It's the voice of the accuser. That is the adversary. So staying faithful to Jesus means, means also being faithful witnesses. That we just, we speak the truth. We don't speak lies about other people. We don't tell lies about ourselves. We don't get caught up in the accusing crowd. May we not do that. He also, in verse five, he calls Jesus the firstborn from among the dead, which he repeats again in 2.8 that we just read to Smyrna. He, he refers to him as being the one who died and came to life again. Staying faithful to the faithful one, church, means accepting that losing is the only way to win. Now, this is why one accusing crowd just begets another accusing crowd, because we think that the way to win is to accuse more loudly, to fight more vehemently. Staying faithful to the faithful ones means accepting that losing is the way to win, that crowns of victory only come after crowns of, crowns of thorns, that, that, that real life is always preceded by death. Staying faithful to Jesus means putting all of our hope in our eventual resurrection from the dead. This is the classic Christian hope. This is a classic Christian hope that, that in the same way that Jesus was raised to new life, never to die again, so shall we. Staying faithful to the faithful ones means, means living in light of the fact that our ultimate destiny of, as followers of Jesus is not some disembodied existence floating around up in heaven for all eternity, but actual, tangible, physical life that will never end. N.T. Wright, classic, classic N.T. Wright line. This is from his book, Simply Christian. He says, resurrection isn't a fancy way of saying, go to heaven when you die. It's not about life after death as such. Rather, resurrection is a way of talking about being bodily alive again after a period of being bodily 
dead. He is the one who was dead and now lives again. And faithfulness to him means accepting that that's the path that it goes through. And we're not afraid to even go through death because we have this ultimate hope of resurrection. And finally, he calls Jesus, and this, guys, I swear, if this, this I might say is kind of like the central theme of Revelation, is that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Over and over again, two refrains you hear constantly through Revelation, don't be afraid, Jesus is king, right, in so many words. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In 2.8, this also uh, is, is implied here in the letter to Smyrna when he talks about him being the first and the last, right? Jesus was the first king. He's going to be the last king. All other kings in the middle are interlopers. They're just kind of like placeholders. He, will out, he preceded them all. He's going to outlast them all. And so staying faithful to the faithful one means pledging allegiance to the rulers of the king, ruler of the kings of the earth. We pledge our allegiance to him and no other. This is why it was such a, a political statement for the early Christians to say Jesus is Lord. This is why so many of the men were getting killed. Because every time they said Jesus is Lord, they were saying Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord. Staying faithful to him means we pledge our allegiance to him to the lamb who is slain and who has become the king of the universe. So when angry, accusing crowds explode, church, stay faithful to Jesus. Amen.